When, when we came out to the amphitheater, by the way, the congregational meeting is next Sunday, just so you know. And then uh, after this Sunday, we have two more Sundays, and by then it'll be a little bit too cold. We'll be moving back into the building, so today and two more Sundays. So we've been doing a discussion all summer on the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us live out that holiness that we talked about. And so we, we came up with the metaphor of life outside the cage. When, uh, when you turn to Jesus, the door to the cage opens. We gave the picture, we've given it several times all summer. Now, if you ever had a chance to go to the circus, my parents took me as a young boy several times. And you go into the back, and the animals are all kept in cages. And I, I think they're probably well cared for. I, I don't know about that. I'm not into that uh, field. They look like they're cared for. But what I do know now is that that's not what God created them for, is to live in a cage. The problem is that when you open the cage, you can't just let them go because they're domesticated. They wouldn't know how to survive. Many of you have pets, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can never let your pets go into the wild. And so that's a picture, I think, of us when we turn to Christ. The cage door opens. We take a step outside the cage, but we're, we may be created for it, but we have no idea how to function within that world. It's a world that's foreign to us. So the first part of the summer, we looked at the teachings in John, teachings of Jesus, recorded in the Gospel of John about another advocate. You're never going to be alone. He's there to teach you all the things that Jesus had taught. He's there to guide us. And then for the last part of this, we're looking in Romans chapter 8. If you want to follow along, we'll be in Romans 8. And so we've looked at several different metaphors in this chapter. Today is one of them is a metaphor of adoption. And let me put it to you this way. When you stepped outside of the cage, you stepped into a family. You stepped into a family. That's what happened. Now, you may remember, if you were here last week, when it was pouring down rain. At the congregational meeting next week, feel free to vote me down. I'm waiting for God to call me to Barbados. Remember, I'm a Florida boy. And on days like this, I can almost survive. But when it's pouring down rain, I'm still waiting for that call. Hasn't come yet. <laughs> okay, last week, we, were, we finished in verse 13. If you live, oh, by the way, I'm joking about Barbados. I'd have to go alone if I went there. If you live according to the flesh... And we took, we went down through these, these clauses, and these are, in Greek, these are clauses that uh, just for the sake of argument, let's assume that they're true. If you decide to live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And what we looked at, starting in this chapter, we're making the turn to the community and away from an individual. It is definitely true of you as individuals, but Paul's primary argument here, I think, is talking about a church, talking about all the churches and the way we live and the way we operate. So if we as a church put to death, that's this idea of continuing on, we're, we're putting to death the sins that occur. Now, what does that look like in a church context? We, we mentioned this briefly last week. It's getting involved in marriages, for example, and solving the marital issues in our church. As long as the divorce rate in the church is the same as the world, we don't have a testimony. We don't have a leg to stand on. That's true in every area of brokenness. 
every area of struggle. So the greatest gift we can give our people and also to enhance our testimony into this world is to take care of our marriages. So I said last week, if your marriage is in trouble, don't be ashamed. My marriage has been in trouble. Ask my wife. Our marriage has been in trouble. And so just don't stay there. By the way, thank you for those of you this week that called me and said, my marriage might be in trouble. Will you help? Yeah, we'd love to help. This is what we get paid for. This is what we live for. This is why we're here, is to help. And so that's what it looks like in a community context, is that we, we begin to lower the divorce rate within our own church and get it coming down. We are way below the national average, as far as I can tell, in every area. This county, uh, by census, only 7% profess to be Protestant. Only seven. What that means is a whole lot less than I'd actually go to church. If you've been to any of the other churches, you know what we're talking about. At least half of you are visitors. This county does not know the Lord. Well, let me back up. When I first came here six years ago, I thought that, uh, you know me, I love hanging out in coffee shops, restaurants, bars, talking to people. And I thought for sure that the big, the big part of my ministry outside the church would be evangelism. Not true. Not true. Almost everybody I've talked to, almost everybody has a faith background. They just walked away. That's a whole different type of ministry than evangelism. That's a ministry of recovery. So I'll sit in a bar, and this has happened, and somebody says to me, so you're a pastor. What's wrong with me sleeping with my girlfriend? (laughs) I just laugh and say, wow, you have a faith background, or you wouldn't be asking that question. What happened to you? Tell me the story. And it's incredible, the stories that I've heard in the last six years of people that have been chased away from the church. Just incredible. It's just incredible. It seems to me the greatest gift we could give our county, and for those of you that are visitors, your own homes, is a sense of safety and redemption where people are coming out of the woodwork and saying, will you help me? I'm in trouble. The answer is yes. Of course we're going to help. That's what we love to do as a church. That's the greatest gift we can give this county is to be loving people. And that's where he finishes. And then he starts in verse 14. This is a text I want to look at today. For those who are led by the Spirit of God. Okay, who is that? These are all plurals, by the way. Y'all. I was corrected last Sunday. I said we need the Texas Bible. Y'all. And somebody came up and said, that's not exactly true. It's all y'all. Now, I went to seminary down in Texas. I guess I never learned that. I never picked up that accent. accent, All y'all. These are all plurals. This is talking to the church. This is talking to us as a people, as a group. For those of you, all y'all, who are led by the Spirit of God, that's us. Do you know what it means to be led? This is a very strong idea. This is a very strong idea. That means that the, whole, the Spirit of God is in our midst, leading us every step of the way. So I'm teaching in Mozambique. Most of you know I go to Mozambique and teach at a school there every year. Do a pastor's conference. In fact, I'm leaving in uh, uh, three weeks. Um, I was doing the pastor's conference, and I started to talk, and one of the pastors said, 
don't you think we should pray for the Holy Spirit to join us? And I said, no, and kept going. Stunned them all. And then about 10 minutes into it, I stopped and I said, why do you think I said that? Think about what we subtly communicate to you when we say, let's ask the Lord to join us. Is it possible not to have the Lord present? Is that even possible? Is there anything we can do as a church without the Spirit of God leading us? That's his conclusion. Those who are led, that's a powerful image. We are led by the Spirit of God. Now, granted, to be fair, just like individuals, we can go kicking and screaming. You all know the serendipity prayer, the two footprints, sets of footprints, and the one set of footprints. You all right? You're familiar with that? Let's see if your hands. You know, what's the one set of footprints? That's where I carried you. I like the one I read on Facebook. What's that line in the sand? That's where I drug you kicking and screaming. <laughs> now, we can do that as a church, but we're not going to be abandoned. He is right here in the middle of it. But then he goes on. I love how the NIV tries to smooth out some of this. For those of you who are led by the Spirit of God, you are the children of God. You are the children of God. And he just finished the section helping us understand the difference between the flesh and the Spirit. And if we are in Christ, we are led by the Spirit of God. We can go kicking and screaming. We can fight our way every step of the way. But he is very present with us. And that's what he's saying here. But then he goes on. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Okay, this is a reference back to Romans 6. We've talked about this several times. You have been set free from the slavery called sin. You're no longer slaves to sin. So therefore, Paul's implied question is, why do you keep sinning? You don't have to. Why? You've been set free. That's what he says here. The Spirit doesn't make you slaves again so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. Okay, now let's back up to the beginning of verse 14. I know what they're trying to do in many of the translations here. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. Actually, it's the sons of God, and they translated it children because they want to bring in the newer idea of, of gender, both males and females, and that's appropriate. That's very, very good. I have nothing wrong with it, but we tend to lose one little cultural piece. You see, in the ancient world, let me describe adoption so it really makes sense to you. I don't think we have a record anywhere in the first century in the Roman Empire of them adopting children. That's not the way it worked. You see, we're in a shame and honor context. And what that means is any one member of the family who brings dishonor on the family can, I mean, who is a dishonorable person can bring dishonor on the whole family. And so almost, I believe every, I hate to use the word every, but it's awful close if it's not there. Every record we have of adoption is they adopted adults. And the reason is real simple. We don't know your character. If I adopt you as a child and you become something less than what we want, you bring dishonor on our family. So adoption of adults serves several purposes. Several things happened through the adoption process. For example, I could say to one of my faithful slaves, you've served me 40 years, and so I'm going to honor you by adopting your adult child. They will take on my name, and they will become part of my family, and they'll receive the benefits and the rewards that go with being part of my family. Okay, that was one of the ways that, that happened. Another one is to adopt a friend. And say, I want to 
bestow the honor of my family on your family, and I'm going to bring you into that. Remember last week we talked about the patronage system, where starting at the very top all the way to the very bottom, I'll do you a favor, but then you owe me. And so from top to bottom, you had this system of ownership, of owing people. That's how it was controlled. And so when it says you've been set free, you're no longer, Paul says in this this section before, you're no longer under those obligations. You have been given your freedom, Galatians 5. Everything has changed. Okay, so now in the city of Rome in particular, you're familiar with the seven hills of Rome, right? On the tops of the seven hills are where the senators and the wealthy people lived. And when you go down into the valleys where the waterways are, the rivers, that's where all the sewage drained and things like that. If you've been to a third world country, you know what I'm talking about. So they, that's, that was the horrible place to be was down in the valleys. Okay? Even I teach in Kathmandu every year. Whew. It's tough walking along the streets of the poor people because the sewage drains right into the water. They don't see streams as a source of life. They see it as a transportation system. So you can stand there and watch. I've watched dead animals. I've watched sewage flow by. And so when you're in the valley of Rome, that's most likely where the church was. Depending on how you talk to, the church probably wasn't very big in Rome at this time. And they were mostly the poor people. They were down in the valley. Adoption was never part of their world. Who's going to adopt them? Who's going to go to this poor person and say, you've been such a person of honor, I want to recognize that and I'll adopt you. That didn't happen. It didn't happen. And so for Paul to bring this metaphor out into this group of people, I believe a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles was very powerful because they were aware how it worked. They just didn't have the privilege. So he goes on. The spirit that you received, you plural, you as a church in Rome, poor people, it's not a spirit that's going to lead you back into oppression. Many of them were probably slaves. That's not the spirit you received. No, it's just the opposite. The spirit that you together received brought about your adoption to sonship. Okay, one more piece to the puzzle. Sonship was often used in the wealthy and the powerful to designate who was in charge of the family. So maybe I have several wives and I have several children. I can adopt one of the sons. That's why I want to leave the word sons in there just for a moment. I could adopt one of the sons and say, you now are in charge. You get the inheritance. When I die, you're in charge of the whole family. This history is replete. Example after example after example with treachery, deceit, murder, where they stole somebody's birthright. Anybody come to mind? Who? Jacob and Esau, right? There's one right there. All you got to do is read the kings, and you'll see the sons killing the sons who were destined to replace the king. History is replete with that, those examples where they would kill those people to get that right. One person got that right, one. One son was adopted and given the right of heir of the estate. 
Now, as Christians, who is that son? Jesus. Jesus. He's the heir of the estate. So look what Paul says. Rather, rather than being slaves again, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. There's the word sonship. Males. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies himself that with our spirit that we are God's children. Now here it switches to the word child to bring in all the genders. So Paul wants to make sure we don't leave it in the realm of cultural maleship. He's illustrating a point by the use of the word male, and now he switches to children. This is the first time he does that in Romans, right here. It's a very powerful, powerful statement. Remember, he's talking to this, this Roman church. He's talking to this Roman church. You have been adopted, and, and they would have gone, us? We're adopted? What have we done to receive adoption? Nothing. You stepped out of the cage when you turned to Christ. That's what did it. Right there. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now let me back up and say a word about Abba Father. Here's how the adoption proceedings would go in the ancient court world, court system. So I'm going to adopt Mark as my slave. He is that. He just gets paid for it now. So his assistant pastor, right? You're still my slave. Yeah, right. So I take him down to the courthouse, and I say to the judge, I would like to adopt Mark as my son. And so the judge says, this is a simplified version of the adoption process, would you like to be adopted? And Mark is, of course, going to say yes. And so the judge says, okay, because through the adoption process, he's now given his freedom. He's no longer a slave. He's now a blood relative in every respect that you can measure. So the judge does the gavel thing and says, you are now free. And so he would look at me and call me a term of respect, Abba, Father. That's a term that was used to describe the, the males who had respect. And all of a sudden, the relationship just changed in the court system. That's what he's describing here. This is it. Except he's describing it to a whole church not just to an individual. So we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out. That's a very powerful word. What did you hear Hunter say this morning up here? I hit the jackpot. And you're a poor person living in the bottom of the gutters of Rome? Yeah, you're going to cry out, Abba, Father, I hit the jackpot. I'm no longer a slave. It gets even better. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now it's inclusive of males and females, everyone. And He doesn't stop there. Now, if we are children, again, here's that tense, and let's assume for the sake of argument that we are. We could even we could even infer here that this is what He's pushing toward. Now that you know that you're children, you're no longer slaves. Now that you know that, then we are heirs. Another powerful word. Now watch how this idea gets bigger and bigger in this next sentence. We are heirs. What that means is you now have the legal right to all of the riches, all of the possessions of the family. 
That's what it means. I'll say it again. If you're in trouble, your marriage is in trouble, got a pornography thing going on, whatever it is, don't be ashamed. Please, come talk to us. Come talk to us. I've been down many of those roads that some of you are walking, and I know what it looks like and feels like. Come get help. All the resources of God's kingdom are available. That's what it means to be an heir. But then he goes one step further. You're heirs of God. He wants you to understand that you have the right to all the possessions in the kingdom. Those are yours. To be used for God's glory. He'll get to that. Then he goes one step further, not just heirs. We are co-heirs with the Son who has been chosen to rule over. That's Christ. We just became co-heirs with Christ. Right here. Let me say it again now. Go back to the metaphor. When you stepped out of the cage, you have the Holy Spirit holding your hand to guide you through the process. Lots of things happened, and this is one of them. When you stepped out of the cage, you stepped into a family, and here it is right here. We're not abusive. We're not going to hurt you. We're going to love you. Let me say it a different way. You had other parents. It's called sin. Sin was despicable. It was destructive. Don't be fooled. Sin hurt you every which way it could. Paul personifies sin in Romans 6 and 7. You're under a parent called sin. Very abusive. They beat you. They hurt you. They shredded you. They undermined you. They criticized you. They mocked you. They laughed you. Laughed at you. And then you were adopted into a family. As Hunter said, you hit the jackpot. You hit the jackpot. And if this church is not that kind of family, then there's something wrong. True. I need to quit if that's the case. That's the type of family we want to be. You are welcome. It honestly doesn't matter to me what sin you struggle with, except to understand how it is influencing the way you think of Christ. So when I sit across from you at coffee shops, when Mark sits across from you, any of our elders, and you start and you have the courage to say, here's what I'm struggling with, and you tell us that, okay, there's no judgment, there's no condemnation. We begin the evaluative process and say, how is that hurting your relationship? What's it like for you to come into a family where it's safe to be here? Because that's exactly what happened. You understand? Does this make sense? You stepped out of a cage of death, loneliness, darkness into a life of freedom, but not alone. You're never alone. Starts with another advocate, the Holy Spirit, who holds your hand every step of the way, and it starts with adoption into a family that cares about you. But then he doesn't stop there. We're co-heirs with Christ. If indeed, once again, here's that if clause. If indeed, and it's true, it is true. If indeed, we share in his sufferings. Wait a minute. I don't want to step out of the cage into a life of suffering. Well, guess what? That's what happens. 
One of the metaphors we used a few weeks ago was that your arm is asleep. You know how you fall asleep on it, blood circulation? And when you, when you wake up and you move your arm, it begins to hurt for a while and tingle. It gets real uncomfortable. That's what it's like coming, to, coming out of the cage, becoming an awake, alive. You begin to realize, for example, that yes, you do hurt people. You do. Yes, you need forgiveness. Yes, you sin. Those things all become part of our lives as we step out of the cage. Philippians 1.29 is one of my favorite passages. For to you, plural, it has been granted. Now pause. We don't have a verb for the word grace in our language, English language, but that's what that is. We don't have a verb for the word grace. To you, it has been graced, Old English, not only to believe in the name of Jesus, but to suffer. Why is suffering part of the grace of God? I would argue that there is no other way to prove to you and to us as a church that our faith is real and strong. One of the questions I ask many of you that are going through trauma, you find out you have cancer, somebody has died, whatever the situation is, one of the questions in the conversation I eventually ask is, how's your faith? Is it strong enough to walk this road? We don't want you to be alone. And so he's... He brings that into the picture in the final thing here. We are co-heirs with Christ, if indeed, and we are going to share in his sufferings. Why? So that we can share in his glory. That's why we stepped into this family. We could share in his glory. For our benefit? No. It's for the benefit of all of our friends and co-workers and neighbors right next to us here that don't yet know the Lord. He is such a good God. And so we begin to share in his glory. You see, suffering is the one language the world understands. So don't pretend. Don't pretend that you have it all together. If you get accused of being a hypocrite, rejoice. Say, yes, I know I am. I just don't want to be that way. Admit it. Language is the one, suffering is the one language we share with the world. They get that. Every one of your friends understands that. It's one of those common things I hear in the county, how lonely I am. I hear that over and over and over again, how lonely I am. I understand that. I know what it's like to suffer. Been there. You know my story. Lost my first wife, 25. Lost my dad, 31. Diagnosed with bladder cancer. Me. Yeah, I share that with people. I share that human experience with people. And that's where the glory of the Lord begins to come out. We'll conclude with this. Ephesians 3, one of my favorite benedictions, to God be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We share that glory with him. We are the ones that the Lord uses to make our neighbors stand up and say, who are you guys? I want to be part of that. Father, thank you. Thank you for just being such a good God. Thank you for opening the cage door. We didn't even know any better. Thank you for escorting us out into a life of freedom not leaving us alone. 
Thank you for teaching us all the things that we need to know to survive outside this cage. And thank you for not letting us journey by ourselves, but helping us to step out into an entirely new family where we find love, safety, acceptance, where we hit the jackpot. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.